0: Welcome to the fifth tape in this series. This tape is called What We Catholics Believe About Jesus of Nazareth who was the most important person who ever lived on this planet because he was almighty God himself made man. God, who is a spirit, took human nature 2,000 years ago and so he had a body and soul just like ours he had existed from all eternity but as uh, as man he's existed for 2,000 years as St John put it the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us this is word with the capital W meaning idea or logos of the Father. The word took a human nature and lived. Literally, apparently, the word is set up his tent among us and lived with us for thirty three years. This is such an important event. We need to know all we can about Jesus of Nazareth, why he came and what he did and said, and also what he taught. So we're going to take a brief look at what history tells us the church says about him, and also at what we find in the Bible. Now the church declared as long ago as 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, that Jesus is one divine person, the second person of the Trinity, who possesses two perfect natures, the nature of God and the nature of man. And he possesses both these natures in his one hypostasis or person. This is described as the mystery of the hypostatic union. And although it's a mystery, it's not a contradiction. Person and nature not being the same thing. Mind you, it seems very strange to us human beings because all we ever see is one person possessing one human nature on this planet and here we've got one divine person possessing two natures, human nature and divine nature. It's not surprising that the council had to be called to clear up the confusion there was among the early Catholics. Some thought perhaps Jesus was a good man, inspired by God, and others, knowing that he was God, thought that he was God who just took an appearance of man, Well, they were both found to be wrong, just a little bit right at the same time. Because he is both true God and true man. That means he is almighty. He knows everything, including exactly who he is, of course. He has all the attributes of God. But at the same time, a real human nature So he felt tired and hungry sometimes, just as we do. And of course, he suffered the pain of his passion and crucifixion, just as we would if we suffered like that. Maybe it helps to think, if you had met Jesus, there are two questions you could have put to him, and he would give you different answers. If you said to him, who are you? he would have said, I am Jesus, second person of the Blessed Trinity. That's who he is, that's his person. If you had said to him, what are you? He would have given you two answers. He would have said, I am God, and I am also man. Because that's exactly what the situation is. He is true God and true man. All this means that Mary, his mother, can honestly be described as the mother of God. She is Jesus' mother. Jesus is God, so she is the mother of God. And at about the same time as it defined that he was one divine person with two natures, the Church added the words, Holy Mary, Mother of God, to the Hail Mary given us by Angel Gabriel and St. Elizabeth. It was also suggested about this time that perhaps God used Our Lady just as a channel for the birth of his son. But the church has decreed that God allowed her to play her full part in his conception and growth. Quoting the words of St. Paul in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, God sent his son made of woman. It's nice to think that as we all belong to one human family we're all related to Jesus on his mother's side. And of course that's how he came to be the son of David as the prophets had all said he would be. So here we have God becoming man and living on earth. Now, why did he become man? Well, the main reason must be to restore the relationship broken by Adam's sin long ago in the Garden of Eden, to unite us again with God as we're meant to be, to make atonement for that sin. Atonement can be broken down to say at one meant, because his atonement brought us together again with God human race is at one with God because Jesus suffered and died and made up for our sin. We were not abandoned after the fall. We have a saviour. And that's how we must look at him initially and primarily all the time. That's how the angel Gabriel looked at him. When he, to- she- he told Mary she would be having a son she gave him the name Call him Jesus. Jesus, the word Jesus, means saviour. And when the angel appeared to St. Joseph, which is described in the first chapter of St. Matthew, he told St. Joseph that the baby was coming to save his people from sin. Again, Simeon, when he saw him as a baby, recognised that his salvation was at hand. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that this baby was the Saviour who was to come. Later on we get John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus' coming, pointing him out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now the use of the word Lamb signifies sacrifice. Jesus was going to sacrifice himself to make up for Adam's sin and for all our sins ever since. Every sin each one of us has ever committed. He was uniquely equipped to do this because having a human nature he could perform a human act and make expiation for human sins. But having a divine nature as well any act he performed was of infinite value he was the right person the only person who could atone for Adams and for all sin in the world and his perfect act of obedience when he allowed himself because he could have prevented it he allowed himself to be taken cruelly treated and then crucified on a cross That obedience more than made up for the act of disobedience in the Garden of Eden. I say more than made up because Jesus was God. Any suffering he underwent, even the smallest suffering, the cold wind in the stable at Bethlehem on Christmas night, whatever, would have made up for our sins. But he didn't choose to do it like that. He chose to suffer as much as any human being can suffer. The agony in the garden, the scourging, which was savage. People used to die under those scourgings. The crowning with thorns and the mockery and the blows and the kicks. The carrying the cross when he was weak from loss of blood. And then, worst of all, of course, his crucifixion. You can't help but wondering why. I think the answer is that he loves us so much, that he was so pleased, so ready to suffer, to make up for our sins, that he wanted to show us, by the depth of his suffering, how deep his love is. It reminds me a little bit of a popular song there used to be a few years ago. The story of the song was the boy had been sent to prison and he was coming out and he wondered if his girlfriend would be pleased to receive him again. So he wrote to her from prison and said, I'm being released. If you want to see me again, put a yellow ribbon on the old oak tree. The train will go past it and I'll know if you want to see me. If there's no ribbon, I'll stay on the train and leave you in peace. Now, when the train came in sight of the old oak tree, he was astonished. It was covered in ribbons, festooned. You see, she only needed to put one, but she wanted to show how pleased she was to have him back. So she covered the tree with ribbons. Our blessed Lord wanted to show how ready he was to suffer and make up for our sins. So he suffered as much as any human being could. And, of course, earned our undying gratitude by doing so. So the Son of Man, as he calls himself, came on earth to seek out and save that which was lost. That's us. He's come to redeem us. But he also came for another reason. He didn't just come on earth live and die, he spent three years travelling round the Holy Land, visiting the towns and the villages, teaching how we should behave, how we should live, how we can prepare ourselves for heaven. And while he was teaching, training his twelve apostles, who would continue the teaching after he'd gone up to heaven, so that whatever generation came on earth whatever time we are born there is the church giving the teaching of Christ now this was a very important part of his life on earth you remember when he was called before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate said to him are you a king then he didn't actually answer directly he said for this was I born For this came I into the world. That the Son of Man would know the truth. To bear witness to the truth. And of course being God. He can perfectly bear witness to the truth. He has no doubt about it. As Simeon prophesied. He will bring revelation to the Gentiles. That's us. So he came to save us from sin, and he came to bear witness to the truth, the truth we need to know. And finally, he tells us himself, he came so that we may have life and have it more abundantly. Life is his name for grace, or help. He's the way we get the grace of God which we all receive through through baptism and the other sacraments. So his coming was a very important event in the history of the world. To unite us again with God, to teach us how we should live and what we should believe, and to bring us the grace that we need to lead good lives and to reach heaven. I think it's interesting to think why should he come at that time which has been described in the Bible as the fullness of time. Perhaps the Jews were ready after centuries of preparation by prophets who taught them first and foremost that there was one true God. That was very important because many of the people living around them at that time worshipped many gods But the Jews were certain, and still are, that there is one God. They were also taught a very strict set of morals. I don't say they all kept them all the time, any more than we do. But they knew about honesty. They knew about chastity and purity. And they taught their children, this was passed down from generation to generation, So but people were being prepared, and they were looking forward to the Messiah. They knew they were the chosen people. They knew that when the Messiah came, he would be one of their race. He would be descended from David, that had been made quite clear. And they waited for him to come. Many of the prophecies that were given about the Messiah... I'll repeat it in the New Testament, especially in St. Matthew's Gospel. Because he wrote primarily for Jews. And he is saying, look, you've learnt this about the Messiah. Well, when Jesus came, this is what he did. This is how he fulfilled it. Maybe the time was just ready. The prophets had all all they should. The final prophet, St. John the Baptist, was born, ready to come. And foretell his immediate arrival. And of course it may have been just that Our Lady was there. The right person who was going to be his mother. The perfect person. And of course other things may have come into play. The existence of the Roman Empire which gave a certain stability to the world at that time. The good roads they built which eased the spread of the early church in the first few centuries. There may have been all sorts of reasons, but he came 2,000 years ago and made such a difference to the whole world. We're all living in the shadow of that ever since. Now I want to talk a little bit about why some people have difficulty in accepting that Jesus is actually God. They seem reluctant, perhaps, because they don't always want to obey his teaching. It may not suit their lifestyle. And so it suits them better to say, oh, well, he wasn't really God. He's just a nice man, a good man, but the same as other good men. We know that he was rejected by most of his people at the time he came. Not by all of them, of course. The early church was Jewish. But a lot of them were looking for a different kind of Messiah. They had a different picture in their minds. They thought somebody would come who would rescue them from the Roman occupation, perhaps. And they'd have flocked to his side and fought with him. For that wasn't what Jesus was going to do. He wasn't interested in politics, but in spiritual matters. As St. John tells us in chapter 1 of his Gospel, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. There's something very sad about that. But he came and he taught. And he chose apostles who would continue his teaching. Now very wisely, he did not approach the apostles right at the beginning and say to them, I'm God, I'm God made man. That would have been a mistake. And he knew, certainly knew, he couldn't do that. The apostles who were devout Jews would have either been so overcome with awe and wonder they'd have flung themselves flat on their faces and hardly dared address him. Or, alternatively, if they didn't believe him they'd have thought, well, he's crazy, he can't be and walked away. So in the beginning, he just introduced himself as a rabbi. Rabbis could start at the age of 30, and Jesus was 30 teaching the faith collecting followers and that's how they thought of him to start with but of course during the three years they spent with him and they lived very closely with him they gradually came to realise this was not an ordinary human rabbi and at the end they all knew he was God and many things put put them in that direction for one thing Jesus spoke with great authority. The rabbis would speak with the authority of the scriptures. They'd studied the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, and they would quote those to people and remind them what Moses said or what various prophets said. Jesus would say, I say unto you, his authority was his own. And everybody noticed that, not just the apostles but his other hearers. He never argued with them or discussed what he would say or teach. He was the master he taught. People could accept it or they could walk away. They were free to choose. But he didn't alter it, compromise with it or change it. There was just no room for argument. Rather like the church today. The church is there to tell us the truth on faith and on morals. There's no room for negotiating. It's there. We can listen to it, or we can walk away from it. He always separated himself a little from the apostles. We never read that he prayed with them. He prayed alone, often getting up at night to go and pray alone. He taught the apostles how to pray, But that was for their prayer. And when he spoke of God the Father, he would say, My Father and your Father. But with the apostles putting himself with them, he didn't say, Our Father. They were taught to say that, just for themselves. And of course his claims became more and more apparent. Shortly before his crucifixion, the famous occasion when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Which everybody recognized, the apostles and his enemies, as a claim to be God. And then earlier than that, when the man who was paralyzed and brought him on a stretcher, you remember they couldn't get into the house, the house that Jesus was teaching in was so packed. They climbed on the roof and they lowered the stretcher down and the man arrived lying on the floor at Jesus' feet. Now obviously he was paralysed, but Jesus could also see that he was in a state of sin and worried about it. So the first thing he said to him was, Be of good cheer, son. Your sins are forgiven you. And the people in the room who had been listening to Jesus immediately began whispering to each other, or even thinking, how can he forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. He's blaspheming. And so to substantiate what he just said, Jesus went on to say to the man, I will show you the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Pick up your bed and walk out. And the man picked up the stretcher he'd been lying on and walked out the room, And he wasn't paralysed anymore. And that silenced the grumblers. They knew that was something they couldn't do. So that made everybody think. And it certainly made them wonder. Then, of course, all the miracles must have made them think. Starting with the water into wine at Cana which the apostles were present at that wedding, or some of them at least were present, and they saw that without even leaving the place where he was sitting, he was able to turn jars of water that were there for people to wash themselves in, into the best wine. It's very interesting that Our Lady knew absolute certainty that he had that power, because she came and asked him to do it. Then when they saw him stopping the storm, they thought they were all going to drown out on the Sea of Galilee. And they realised he had power over the wind and the waves, which human beings don't have, of course. That must have made them think. He could walk on the water. He could heal people, even lepers. And, of course, especially the resurrection. They knew he'd died on the cross on Good Friday. And then they saw him alive on the Sunday evening. He brought himself back to life. He had prophesied that he would and then he did it. And that is a unique occurrence in the whole history of the world. No one has ever prophesied they will bring themselves back to life. And then, after being in the tomb from a Friday night till Sunday morning, brought themselves back to life. Now that was finally what told them. And you remember the, the famous story of St. Thomas's declaration. The first time that Jesus appeared to all his apostles, on Easter Sunday evening, St. Thomas the Apostle wasn't with them. He was Thomas Didymus, which means Thomas the twin. And maybe he was visiting his twin in Jerusalem. But he wasn't there, and when he came back later that evening to join them, and they told him, we've seen the Lord, he's alive. He couldn't believe it. He refused to believe it, no matter how much they said it. In the end, he said, I'm not going to believe unless I see him myself, and I walk out and put my hand in his side where the centurion's sword went, and my finger in the holes where the nails went. Then I'll believe. And for a whole week he refused to believe. But the following Sunday evening, when they were eating their evening meal again, together in the upper room, and he was with them, Jesus did appear. And of course, immediately, St. Thomas recognized him and realized he was alive. He must have felt rather ashamed of what he'd said, especially as Jesus showed at once that he'd heard him. Come on, Thomas, he said. You want to put your hand in my side, your finger in the hole where the nails were. And Thomas came out, and of course he didn't do that. He just knelt. And he said, My Lord and my God. He knew now for certain this was God made man. And Jesus and his reaction is all-important, accepted that, put his hand on his head and said, Blessed art thou, Thomas, because now you believe. But I'll tell you this, people will come in later years who don't actually have to see for themselves and who still believe. And they are even more blessed than you are. And of course he was talking about people like us, so Jesus accepted Thomas's worship as God. Now if you're a good man, and obviously his teaching shows it was good, you don't accept worship. You don't let people call you God. You inform them once, no I'm not God. And that's always been so. We find that in other parts of scripture. You remember when the angel appeared to Tobias as an angel and Tobias was overwhelmed with his beauty and bent down to adore him. He said, no, no, I'm a servant like you. I'm not God. And even more striking, I think, the story of St. Paul and St. Barnabas, when they were preaching in Greece, when they first went to Greece. And they found a place with all sorts of monuments to different gods, including a monument to the unknown god. And St. Paul was very quick pick up on the right things, said, this is what we'll talk about. We'll tell them about the unknown God, that's the true God. And he began to preach. And the Greeks who were very interested listened. Eventually they said, well, we're going to break off now, going back to the village, it's time for our meal, but we, we're interested, we'll come back and we'll hear more. And they wandered back. Paul and Barnabas stayed where they were, feeling, you know, that they'd done a good thing and looking forward to the afternoon. But when the Greeks came back, to their astonishment, they were brought a bull with them, festooned with flowers, they brought garlands and wreaths which they put round Paul and Barnabas' necks, and they began to pray to them. They were going to sacrifice the bull. They had decided that these two were gods. Paul was Mercury, because he did most of the talking, and Barnabas was Jove, because he was a big, tall fellow. And Paul and Barnabas were absolutely distressed, quite distraught. They began to tear their garments and pull at their hair and say, Stop! We are not God. We are ordinary men like you. We are telling you about God. Now that's the reaction you have if you're mistakenly mistaken for God. But not Jesus' reaction. He commended St. Thomas. Rather, as he had commended St. Peter, Uh, remember earlier, two, two years before, at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked the apostles, who do men say that I am? And they came up with all sorts of answers. Some said, Elijah, come back. Some said, John the Baptist, come back. And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And they fell silent because at that stage they were not sure. And in the end, St. Peter, and he usually was the one who spoke up, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon bar because flesh and blood have not revealed that to you, but your Father in heaven. That means if you have the faith, To believe in Jesus, that he is God, and to follow his teaching, it's a gift. That gift of faith comes from God. And he praised St Peter for recognising him as the Son of God. And the Son of God does mean God. I know sometimes it's used these days in an ambiguous way. And people like to say God the Son to make it quite certain what they mean. But Son of God must be God, because we have beings who have our own nature. Human beings have human babies. The Son of God must be divine, just as God is. That's something you all know, really. I remember when I was teaching, one of my mothers, who had several children already, was expecting another baby. And her little boy said to her, Mummy, do you think we could have a puppy this time? I think he was a bit bored with babies. And of course, she knew, and I knew, and everybody knows, every adult. You can't have a puppy this time. Human beings have human babies. God the Son, the Son of God, is God. So Peter was making a tremendous confession of faith. And Jesus praised him it was true. So if we really read the Bible and think about it, we shouldn't have any difficulty accepting that Jesus is God. Now I hope I'm not making it look as if it was fine for the people living at that time, but it's harder for us. Because We have the apostles' testimony. We have the story of their lives following the resurrection when Jesus had gone back up to heaven and they started the church. They died rather than deny what they were teaching. They spread the news of the resurrection throughout the known world as far as they could. And they taught others to go on spreading it. And they suffered very painful martyrs' deaths, all except St. John, rather than deny any of it. Now, you can get people who tell lies, but you don't get people who die for a lie. If something isn't true, they, they, they climb down at the last moment and say it's not true. The apostles died, rather than deny what they were saying. So we can trust what they're teaching. Also the continued existence of the church, which started with such a tiny band of ordinary people, and has continued, never been out of existence for two thousand years and is still in existence, is unique. And I also think there's no alternative to think, realising that Jesus is God. It's well known that He existed. History can prove that. Now, If he were just a good man, he wouldn't have allowed people to make out that he was God. And he did, as I've shown you. If he were deluded, he would not have produced such inspiring teaching, which even non-Christians admire, and which has produced saints. So I don't think there is seriously any room to doubt that Jesus is God-made man. That is so important because it makes an enormous difference to our attitude to him. If he's God-made man, we listen to his teaching, we obey his words. Also, we can learn to know him and love him, and we owe it to ourselves to make the most of this opportunity. You should read his words in the Bible, in the New Testament, and think about them, ponder on them, You remember that St. Jerome said ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Something very hard to defend. One time, of course, most people couldn't read. They had to just rely on what they heard in sermons, stained glass windows and statues, and the mystery plays. But nowadays, most people can read. I think when we get to heaven, I hope we all get to heaven, the people who lived when they couldn't read will say to us, you could read, and you didn't bother reading the New Testament. They'll hardly believe it. That's where we should start. And we should read books about him, preferably by canonized saints. We should pray to him, assist at mass and receive in the sacraments as frequently as possible, and visit him in the Blessed Sacrament. And this way we forge a real relationship with him which is what we were created for. And as each of us is different, it'll be a unique relationship, special. Special to him and special to us. And that's what Jesus wants. And one of the ways to draw us closer to Jesus, of course, is by saying the Rosary. Because then we think about him, and we think about the episodes in his life that are important to him and to us. I think this must be why our Blessed Lady gave the rosary to St. Dominic. She knew it would bring us closer to Christ. And she's always looking for ways to bring us closer to her son. The five joyful, the five sorrowful, and the five glorious mysteries make up the important events of his life. It's interesting. that In the 19th century, there was a fashion to have six joyful, six sorrowful, and six glorious mysteries. And you sometimes still see old statues with six decades on the rosary. The sixth mystery was left to your own personal choice. You chose an incident that appealed to you. And It's a very nice idea. But we're saying the five at the moment. And the one we're saying today is the fourth joyful mystery of the rosary. Jesus' presentation in the temple. He'd been born in Bethlehem. And Mary and Joseph would have stayed there while he was so tiny. I can imagine the day after his birth, Joseph would have gone to have his census to give his, to register his name and Mary's name and the baby Jesus' name. And then I imagine he'd have looked for some work so that he could keep them while they were in Bethlehem. They'd have attended the synagogue on the Saturdays. And when Jesus was eight days old, they would have had him circumcised according to the law. When he was six weeks old, 40 days, that was when they had to take him to the temple according to the Judaic law, for him to be offered up to God the Father. And so they would have gone the seven miles to Jerusalem and carried him in to the temple. In the precincts they would have bought two turtle doves, that was their sacrifice they exchanged for him in in the ritual. And then in the temple, one of the priests would come forward to help them. And of course the one who came was Holy Simeon. He saw this young couple come in with obviously a baby ready for presentation in the temple. And he took him and he took Our Lady and he did all the Jewish rites. And then, still holding the baby, the Holy Spirit told him, This is the Messiah you have been waiting for and all the Jews have been waiting for for so long. And his heart filled with joy. And he said a beautiful prayer. We call it the Nunc Domitus in Latin. But it's now Lord. You can dismiss your servant. According to your word in peace. Because my eyes have seen my salvation. And this baby is going to be. A light to the revelation of the Gentiles. And the glory of his people Israel. And then he said to St. Joseph and Our Lady, This child is set for the fall and resurrection of many, and a sign which will be contradicted. And to Our Lady, Thy soul, singular, a sword will pierce, that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. And then Our Lady took the baby back into her arms, and they went back to Bethlehem pondering the words that Simeon had spoken in their hearts. So that's the story we think of while we say the Our Father, ten Hail Marys and glory be, of the fourth joyful mystery of the Rosary, the presentation in the Temple. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. Thank you very much for giving me your attention again. The next tape is going to be about sanctifying grace, the supernatural life that Jesus gives us, and the sacrament of baptism. God bless you all.